Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Thank God for You. Thank God for You. And as a Christian, you are blessed beyond measure. You are blessed beyond measure. It's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to forget just how charmed and blessed your life is positionally in Christ through the provisions that he's made through his son sourced in his great love for you. But you see, this idea that you're blessed beyond measure is a fixed spiritual reality regardless of the trials that you're going through. This is a fixed spiritual reality regardless of what you feel about it. This is a fixed spiritual reality regardless of whether you understand it or are practically abiding in it or not presently. Whether you're appropriating this or not, it's a fixed reality that you are blessed beyond measure as a child of God. And there's so many things that you could thank the Lord for. So many. And, you know, as you struggle maybe with insomnia, you struggle with falling asleep, you're in a place where you're emotions are are running wild, you're in a place of anxiety or panic, you come to the Lord in prayer, one of the best things, even if you can't think straight, would be just to think, Lord, just help me to think about all the things that I could be thankful for. But when you think about Thanksgiving being a part of your prayers, and we're going to begin a series here this morning on Paul's prayers, and as you think about prayer, in general, one aspect of prayer or one type of prayer, depending on how you want to label that, but an aspect of prayer is this idea of having an attitude of gratitude or thanksgiving, and we'll see that in this first prayer that we look at of Paul's this morning. But as you think of the things you could be thankful for or you should be thankful for, one source of thanksgiving should be your brothers and sisters in Christ. Take a look around this room. No, actually do it. I mean, look around. Is that what comes to your mind when you see each other this morning? I'm not going to have you stand up and hug and shake hands. And <laughs> I should. <laughs> I got one ready in the back. Okay. Mike Bowl has personally committed to hugging each one of you <laughs> on your way out this morning. All right. But is that, is that what comes to your mind? Or do you look at each other and say, oh, there's that guy again. <laughs> or have a sense of apathy, just same old, same old. I don't, I don't, or is it worse? <laughs> is it worse than that? Is it a sense of, oh, I can't stand that guy. <laughs> but what it should be is a sense of thanksgiving. I think a sense of gratitude that God has given you a family of believers brothers and sisters in Christ. See, we have some visitors here this morning that have traveled from some distance to be with us. You know, so you think about the family of God. Of course, it has a universal application, meaning that each and every person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ is your brother and sister in Christ. But it has a local application, too, in the local church. So as somebody can travel from a distance you can greet them with a sense of just gratitude and thanksgiving, knowing that they're a fellow believer. And you can, in essence, say, thank God for you. And then as it applies itself, or you see the local application of that in the local church, you can look at one another and say, thank God for you. 
And that's the perspective that the Word of God teaches, and we're going to see that here this morning in this prayer of Paul. But unfortunately, believers tend to take each other for granted. Believers tend to fixate on unimportant differences, disputes, and disagreements instead of rejoicing in God's provision for them. God provided the one another's in your life that are fellow believers in Christ. He provided them for you, for your good, for your benefit, also for you to serve and love, for you to minister to. He provided them as a source for the outflow of the Spirit of God working in your life that could be directed at something. See, God chooses to work through people to reach people and minister to people. So even if you don't feel those other things or see those other things, do you see that it's a blessing that God put people in your life that he wanted to use you uh, to minister to them? But often that takes a back seat as we let other things creep in the way. We let other things impact that prevent that from happening. Sometimes it's distractions. Sometimes it's a lack of having that heart or letting the Lord produce that kind of thinking in you. Sometimes it's personality differences. Sometimes it's holding on to grudges, roots of bitterness, anger, disappointment, discouragement. I mean, if you're not going to minister or enjoy being around people just because they've discouraged you in the past, (laughs) guess what? There's not going to be many people that can minister to you and vice versa. Part of the human condition is that at times we let each other down, sometimes legitimately and sometimes just by your perception. They hadn't actually let you down in any kind of a way that had, you know, that was sinful or, or had anything to do with God, really. You had just set an expectation for what you wanted in that relationship with somebody, and they didn't measure up to that. They didn't meet up to that standard. So we think about that. I'm getting off track here. But Paul, he frequently discusses thanking God in general, but then he specifically, he frequently in his prayers, well, not even so much in his prayers, though some of his prayers, but just in passing, he talks about how thankful he is for fellow believers. More than 12 times, he, talks, he says directly, I'm thankful for you, and in reference to a fellow believer. Over 12 times, Paul does that. And so, oftentimes he does it, though, not just in, as a statement, but often he does it in the form of a prayer that's recorded in God's Word. And so, one of such occasions where Paul says this is Romans chapter 1, verse, verses 8 through 12. So we're going to look at that prayer today as we begin this new series on Paul's prayers. So you can turn there. I'm going to do a little bit of background, though, before we get into the text for this morning, give you just a little bit of a background or introduction about why start this series. You know, we finished 3 John, we did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in that order in a verse-by-verse study. And, you know, I know at times there's a variety of different topical studies that we could do here too, and I've done them in terms of the redemption love story we, that we did on Wednesday nights was an overview or a topical study of the whole Bible from creation to Christ. And it took us two and a half years to get through that. But each one had a new topic. It was carrying the same theme, but it, was, it wasn't a verse-by-verse uh, in terms of book-by-book study. It was a topical study about how you can see the redemption plan of Christ or of God that was fulfilled through Christ 
from the very first pages of your Bible. And we had a message about that in terms of just a review for church fellowship night in Genesis chapter 3 with original sin and how God is going to have to make a way. God's going to have to fix what's broken here. And so we did a whole series on that. You know, we've covered, we've covered other things like that, but I wanted to switch because to a topical study here and just look at Paul's prayers as something that I've been thinking about for a while. And so you say, why study Paul's prayers? Well, I'll give you a few reasons. One, Paul's prayers originate with God himself. God is the ultimate author of Scripture, so what's recorded in Scripture originates with him. So as such, they are intended for your benefit, and they're infinitely valuable. That ought to be reason enough right there, is that they're included in Scripture. But secondarily, they illustrate the mental attitude of a mature believer. They, they illustrate the mental attitude of a mature believer. Now, had Paul f- arrived? You know, did Paul see himself with a sense of pride? Did he hold himself up as a mature believer? Not directly. He said, I've not attained. I keep moving forward. I keep pressing forward. I, I try to forget the things that are, are behind, and I keep pressing forward. I keep trying to keep my eyes on the prize of the high calling, the upward call. He said, not that I've attained, but this one thing I do, I, I keep trying to, by the power of the Spirit of God, by God's grace, I keep trying to move in that direction where I'm knowing him more intimately. I'm growing in my understanding. I'm growing in grace. And at the same time, he says, I, any, I am what I am by the grace of God. So any progress I make, it's to God's glory. It's, it's because of God anyway. And so he has that posture, that, that mindset. But it's instructive to look at the attitude or, or to take in the attitude of a mature believer. Because for most of us, there's things that can be learned from that. Have you ever listened to a mature believer pray and been impressed by some of the distinctions or differences between the things that they're focused on and the things that you're focused on? Have you ever listened to kids pray? You know, it's things like, dear God or dear Heavenly Father, pray that we can have a good time today. Pray that I can do good on my math test. Pray that mom won't be so mean to me. (laughs) See, kids are focused on very immediate, physical, temporal things that are in front of them right now, as they should be. That's that's natural. But as you see, as we look at Paul's prayers, you're going to see they're very distinct from that. They're very different than that. And they show an attitude that's more focused on eternal things, and we'll get to that in a second. Now, a third reason to study Paul's prayers are they represent prayers offered in the continuing dispensation of the church age or the age of grace. And thus, they're especially relatable or relevant to believers today. You know, on one hand, roughly 2,000 years have gone by, give or take. On the other hand, in terms of being a dispensational church, we, we, we're still in the same phase of, of God's plan for the ages. Right now, the church age, the age of grace that Paul was writing in as he wrote to churches, to local churches, to believers 
in the development or the earlier stages of the church age. We're just in the later stages of the church age. So unlike some parts of scripture where we have to say, this is written for our benefit, but it's not written directly to us, that's not the case with Paul's prayers. They're written directly for our benefit. And a fourth reason is they serve as illustrations of the proper content, emphasis, and focus of prayers. Why do you think God would record so many of Paul's prayers, if, if not to be instructive, if not to show us something, if not to maybe change our perception and our attitude about what prayers are all about and what the, again, the focus and the emphasis and the content of prayer should be. And so there's at least four reasons why I see it being extremely worthwhile and valuable for us to study Paul's prayers. Now, second to that is the idea that one of Paul's greatest emphasis, emphases as he teaches and writes these letters and preaches to local churches is on the value and the importance of prayer. So if he teaches a lot about the importance of prayer, then maybe looking at his individual prayers would be very useful and beneficial to us. You see, Paul encourages believers to pray often, and there's lots of passages we could go to. I'll put one up on the screen here. <coughs> First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. How often should you pray? Pray without ceasing. How often should you have an attitude of gratitude? In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It doesn't get much clearer than that, friends. And so God's will for us, as encouraged by Paul, is that we would pray often, that we would have this attitude of gratitude. Then it would be instructive, I think, to look at what Paul has to say when he prays. The second thing is that as you think about how much Paul emphasizes the importance of prayer, he reminds fellow believers that he is praying for them often. And here's one example. We give thanks to God always for you. Now you look at that little word though. We give thanks to God always for you all. Meaning that he wasn't isolating his prayers to one specific person. He was trying to be mindful of praying for everybody in this church congregation that he was writing to in Thessalonica. And he says, we make mention of you in our prayers, you all, and our prayers will carry over from the first part of that verse, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. Paul emphasizes the importance of prayers when he requests that other believers pray for him. And again, we could have spent the whole time we have this morning doing just an overview of the importance of prayer, but I actually wanted to get into the first prayer of Paul that we're going to cover, so I'm just going to show you one verse about this, but here's one example where Paul is asking other believers to pray for him. In Romans 15.30, he says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. What an interesting prayer. I'm praying that you would pray for me. That's pretty, pretty amazing. You think about even this mindset of wanting to partner with somebody in a ministry sense. 
That's kind of what he's getting at here, is he's telling them, you know that I'm out on the mission field. You recognize that I'm out there doing the work of the ministry in terms of evangelism, proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Now, one way that you can partner with me is through prayer. He tells the Philippians another way they've partnered with him is through financial support. There's ways to get in on this without actively being there in person. You're there in spirit as you would pray for me, he's saying. You see, Paul was certainly known as a man of prayer. One thing you could observe about Paul is that although Paul wrote twice as many epistles as all the other apostles combined, there are eight times as many prayers recorded in his epistles. So you'd say, no wonder there's more, Paul, more of Paul's prayers recorded than anyone else's. He wrote more than anyone else. Yeah, but he only wrote twice as much as everyone else. But he has eight times as many prayers recorded in his letters than anyone else. And you think about that. There must be something to that. Maybe it would be worth looking at those prayers. And interestingly, the first thing that is said about Paul as a means of identifying him to a fellow believer was that he would be found praying. Turn to Acts chapter 9. This is a small point, but it's, it's sort of fascinating. It's an interesting way that Paul was described. This is how you'll know who Paul is or that you found the right guy. <clears throat> God says this to Ananias. Paul's just had his conversion on the road to Damascus. He's, he sent Ananias now to fetch him. And he says, this is how you're going to be able to identify him. I'll put it up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. Acts 9.11. So the Lord said to him, and the him is Ananias, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Now, there had to be some gap in time between when God speaks to Ananias and when he actually finds Saul, whose name is changed to Paul, Apostle Paul. But yet God is confident that in the intervening time, he's still going to be praying. He's praying now, but he's going to be praying when you get there too. Kind of an interesting thing, but it speaks to, again, the importance that Paul puts on prayer. Again, as inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, how many of Paul's prayers are recorded in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament? Well, it depends on what you count as a prayer. And you say, what do you mean? How could it be that ambiguous? Well, sometimes <clears throat> he's summarizing a prayer that he's already prayed. And that's what we're going to see here this morning. He's not praying in real time. He's summarizing a prayer that he's been having on a repeated basis for this group of believers. And so do you count that as a prayer? Other times he's He's just simply talking about prayer more generically about the content of prayer, but he's not actually praying. And so some people count some of those. Some people break individual prayers, so passages that he's given that are about prayer, and, and they break them down into individual components of prayers within 
that passage, that, that the passage can stand for more than one individual prayer. So the, the answer is ambiguous, but 25 to 30, depending on how you define them, is the best I could come up with. 25 to 30. So how many are we going to look at in this series? And I guess the answer to that is, we'll see. Now, a couple of general characteristics of Paul's recorded prayers that you should be considering as we start diving into the actual prayers. One, consider this. They tend to be brief rather than lengthy. They tend to be brief rather than lengthy. Two, they include thanksgiving, petitions, intercessions, and prayers. So there's different aspects to those prayers, and we're going to see at least three of them in this first prayer this morning. The third thing is they tend to emphasize the eternal realm or spiritual needs over the temporal realm or physical needs. They tend to emphasize the eternal realm over the temporal realm. Now, the other thing to know about our series here is that we're not going to (coughs) cover these prayers chronologically, but rather in the order that they appear in the New Testament. And so that's what gets us to Romans chapter 1, Verses 8 through 12. Let's just read this prayer, and then we'll dig into it a little bit more closely. Now, you ought to know that, as I said, this isn't a specific prayer so much as it is Paul summarizing what he has been praying as it relates to these believers in Rome. So let's back up to verse 7 so that you see the, the audience that Paul is talking to. You'd get that from the name of the book here, the letter, the epistle to the Romans. But verse 7, to all, not see there's an important use of the word all again, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So he's talking to believers in Rome, and he's talking to all of them. He greets them with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he gets into a summary of what he's been praying. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. So as we jump into the first verse of this, again, prayer summary, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So this word first here carries the idea of before anything else. before anything else. This is important to me. So before I fixate on anything else, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. So you look at this word, I thank. Here is an example of a prayer of thanksgiving. It's based on the same root word as charis, which is usually translated grace. So it's an extension of that word charis. So that's where we get the word that's 
usually translated almost almost exclusively translated grace in the New Testament. The word is used to describe the recipient's response of gratitude or appreciation for undeserved generosity. So that's why it's tied to the same word grace, is that this is an extension of the recipient of the grace's response to that gratitude response of gratitude for that generosity that was bestowed on them when they didn't deserve it. So there's that attitude of, what, what do we mean when we say, I thank God? When you express that to God, it's in light of what he's done for you. If there's a sense of God bestowed his grace on you as he did for you what you didn't deserve, both in terms of dealing with the penalty of your sin as he died in your place on Calvary, as he bore your sins in his own body on the tree, as he became death for you, he died in your place so that you could experience a life that you don't deserve. See, you were born estranged from God because you were born into a race of sinners, the race of Adam. And so you identified a natural inclination towards putting self first. And in putting self first, you rejected and rebelled against God's instruction or his point of view that he should be first. And so you had a natural tendency to that in terms of nature, but by choice then you also chose to sin. You had a free will, a volition that said you could choose to follow God's plan and direction for your life or you can do your own thing. You can rebel against God. You can try to live independent of God instead of in complete dependence on him. But God said the only way that you could be rescued from this predicament that you find yourself in is if you realize that you have a need, that your sinfulness has separated you from my holiness. God couldn't just ignore sin because he's also just. And a just God, the justice demands that there be a debt paid for sin. There's a penalty associated with sin. So God couldn't ignore sin. Also, he couldn't be in union with sin because it would taint and take away from his holiness. And that's where man found himself alienated from God, estranged from God, described as God's enemies, described as dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says about the state of man, the condition of man in this predicament, that there's no man that's good, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that's righteous, no, not one. It says there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. It says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It says that even our best efforts to please God or to make ourselves to fix the problem, the, the predicament that we're in, even our best efforts at righteousness t- from God's percep- perspective, since they don't include him, since they're not motivated by him, since they're not directed by him, since they're not empowered by him, since they leave him out, he looks at that effort to m- be righteous through your own strength, and he says that, to me, that's offensive rags. That's filthy rags to me. So if even our best efforts to please God through doing the right things from the wrong power source is offensive to God, we've got a real problem. And that's the picture that the Bible paints. That man is hopeless and helpless and ultimately hellbound unless something is done about this barrier of sin that is separating him from a holy, righteous, just God. But there's another quality of God that we know, which is that God is love. And God in his love, he looked down at man in his sin and he said, I love you anyway. And I want to make a way for you to be with me. But you see, there was a debt that was owed, and the debt was death. Eternal separation from God. There's a debt that was demanded death for sin. 
And so there's only two options. Either man would have to die and remain forever estranged from God to pay the debt he rightfully owed, or there would have to be a substitute that was innocent but was willing to take the place of the guilty. And that's the message of the good news of the gospel, that God in his love sent a substitute, the spotless, perfect Lamb of God, who came to earth and died in the place of sinners. The one who was perfect took the place of the guilty. The one who was sinless took the place of the sinner. And as your sin, your debt, was poured out on Jesus Christ as he hung on a cross, he cried out ultimately, it is finished. As he died in your place. And the word that is translated, it is finished, it means paid in full or a debt has been satisfied completely. Meaning there was no more debt that needed to be paid. So now the issue is what is your response to that message that an innocent, perfect lamb of God would come bankrupt heaven, come and humble himself, take the form of a servant and die in your place and bear your iniquities in his body on the tree. What is your response to that? So the Bible says there's two possible responses. One, you could accept by faith, meaning putting all of your trust, your eggs in one basket, basket, putting your confidence, putting your faith, putting your dependence, all synonyms. You could put that confidence for the safeguarding of your eternal destiny. You could put it in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you could say, if he said it was good enough, if God accepted that sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead to proclaim that there was victory over sin, hell, and the grave, that if God the Father accepted the payment of the Son of God on my behalf, will I accept that? Will, will I have a mentality that says, that's good enough for me. I'll put my trust in that. And so man has a choice to make. Will I accept that, receive that, believe in that, seeing that there's nothing I can do to add to what was already perfect? Or am I going to reject that in my pride, in my arrogance, and say, God took care of part of what needed to be taken care of, but he needs me. He needs me to finish what he started on Calvary. So I do believe that there was a Jesus. I do believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins, but I even believe that he died for me. But that death wasn't enough because unless I do my very best and then let him do the rest, I can't be saved. And that's what religion is teaching. It's teaching that what Christ did wasn't enough. That what Christ did was part of what needed to be done. And now you come along and do your part. And there's a lot of different ways to describe what religion says your part is. Sometimes it's do the best you can. Sometimes it's go through a religious ritual, like a baptism or a confirmation or something along those lines. Sometimes it's to pray a certain prayer or say certain things or clean up your life in certain ways or follow a certain list of do's and don'ts. But you see how that's all in addition to what Christ has already done. And so the Bible says that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the question is, will you receive the gift or will you say, I don't need the gift. I just need a little bit of a boost. I'm pretty much there already on my own. And if you do that, that is to reject Christ. And to reject Christ means to remain forever separated from him under God's wrath. And God says, 
that doesn't need to be the case because although we have this verse here on the wall about John 3.16, our God loved the world so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. He says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. It says he who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. You see, there's only one thing keeping people out of heaven, and it's not sin. It's have you believed in the name of the Son of God. Put all of your trust in his finished work on your behalf. And so when you come back to our passage here this morning, we think about, I thank God for you. This word thank, is, it's, it starts with this thankful attitude for God's grace as it affected you in terms of your position, where because of your faith in Christ's finished work on your behalf, the Bible says that the moment you put your faith in Christ, your citizenship is transferred from this earth to heaven. Your identity changes from being in Adam to now being in Christ as you're identified with Jesus Christ. That's where, that's the beginning of God's gracious provision in your life. But then as his child, it says, beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we could be called sons of God. And as God's child, he now wants to provide and undertake to meet your every need in this life. And that's what Paul's talking about, this sense of gratitude that he has for this undeserved generosity that God has bestowed on him, starting with dealing with his, the penalty of his sinfulness, secondarily dealing with the influence of sin trying to rule and reign in his life and giving him victory from the power of sin over his life. But he has a specific object of his thankfulness. Here, God's generosity to him. Remember how we started talking about that there's so many things that you could thank the Lord for. You're blessed beyond measure. You can't even remember all the things that God has done to bless you. Well, one of the specific applications of it is that Paul has this gratitude for this kindness that he received from God towards him in the form of other people that God has put in his life. So the next part of it is, I think, my God, you see the personal nature of that relationship? You see the foundation for positional and practical salvation is personal faith. There was a point in time on a road to Damascus where Paul was confronted with the truth of who Jesus Christ was. He had a choice to make. He was a very religious man. Either I'm going to keep trusting in my religious efforts and my religious works, or I'm going to put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And all of that, the details of that mental analysis are not recorded in Acts, but the gist of it is that that's the choice he was faced with. And he made a choice that he would stop trusting in himself or his efforts to please God through his best attempts at making himself acceptable to God. And he would put his trust in the fact that he never could fix what was broken about himself, but God in his love had already provided a solution to his problem. And he accepted that by faith. That moment, his, he became a child of God. And that changed his life forever. So there's that personal aspect to faith, and you see it here in his prayer. I thank my God now through Jesus Christ. For the Christian, access to God is directly linked to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without his redemption, there is nothing but estrangement. See, Acts chapter, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3. You could turn there. Let's get some page turning. Ephesians three eleven and 12. There's just a lot of doctrine. There's a lot of truth built into Paul's prayers. He says, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Well, through Jesus Christ, it's only through him that I have access to God. Ephesians 3, 11. It says, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished, the Father, he, he is in reference to the Father, accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, still talking about Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and what? Access with confidence through faith in him. It's through the blood of Christ shed on behalf of sinners that a man can be made right with God positionally, can be justified, declared to be in a right standing with a holy God on the basis of another's righteousness having been imputed to his account. See, God took our sin and put it on his son, and the moment of faith he takes his son's righteousness and he clothes us with that. So that Christ's righteousness now is clothing us so that God looks at us and he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of his son and he says, now I can have that wall of sin that was separating you. That's been broken down. Now I can have a relationship with you. But it was all through Jesus Christ. Now, we spent a lot of time getting to this, but I thank God, skip across my God, my God through Jesus Christ. The main point of this sentence is I thank God for you all. And note the universal emphasis of this prayer. You all refers back to all the saints in Rome from verse 7. You see, Paul's primary concern is always for people and specifically for their spiritual well-being. Now, if you look at verse 8 here, you see there's a specific thing that he's thankful for. So generally, I thank my God through Christ, through Jesus Christ for you all, but then there's a specific aspect of it. That, what am I specifically thankful for? That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Throughout the whole world. So that's the thanksgiving aspect of Paul's prayer here. And you note that gratitude for what God has already provided precedes Paul's petition for specific present needs or desires. Just an interesting thing. We'll be looking at a lot of his prayers. We'll see how consistent he is in that. But in this particular prayer, he starts with gratitude before he moves on to specific petitions or specific requests from God. Now we go to verse 9. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. And so you could summarize that with, I always pray for you. So we started with, I thank God for you. Now we have, I always pray for you. And here's an example of intercessory prayer. Prayer on another's behalf. So we had a prayer of thanksgiving, an example of that. Now we have intercessory prayer. Now who can vouch for this? He says, God is my witness. See, Paul sees himself as a servant who is proclaiming the gospel of his son, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that servant-mindedness, his focus is on people who don't know the Lord. And in his prayer here, his focus is on fellow believers that are already saved, that Paul is praying for. Now, how often does Paul pray for them? It says, without ceasing. And then you see the word always. Without ceasing and always, you're in my prayers. I always pray for you. Now, who is the subject of Paul's prayers? It's the same you all from verses 7 and 8. All of these fellow believers that happen to be a part of this church, 
in Rome. Now, what is a prerequisite to praying for believers? As you look at this verse, what's a prerequisite to praying for believers? You actually have to be praying to begin with. Okay, there's a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. You're not going to pray for fellow believers if you're not praying at all. It starts with seeing the value and importance of prayer. It starts with seeing that I get to talk to the God of the universe who loves me desperately, calls me his child, has provided everything for me and wants to live life with me in a place of intimacy. I get to talk to him whenever I want. He's with me all the time. He, in fact, lives inside of me. You want to be close? You want to be closer to God? I mean, how many of you are sitting here this morning and saying, I don't really feel that particularly close to God? I'm convinced to some extent. I'm convinced that he's real. I know I was a sinner. I know I, I, know I needed to be saved. I put my faith. I do believe that Jesus died for my sins and that there's nothing more that I need to do other than accept that by faith. I know I'm his child and I know he generally cares for me, but I don't feel very close to him. How many of you right now are estranged from someone else in your life that you used to be close to but you're not close to now? Show of hands. Most of you. Right? We even have a, a youngster who can raise his hand. The reason for that is because remember when you were in preschool and there was that kid Donnie that you used to play with all the time on the playground? There was that, there was that girl Susie that you used to talk to at lunch all the time? She still goes to the same school, Susie and Donnie do. But now you're in the fourth grade. For whatever reason, you don't even know what happened. You're now no longer close to them anymore. You got new friends, Carolyn and Tommy. And for a while, they're going to be your buddies. Every once in a while, on a rare occasion, they end up kind of sticking with you for a long time. But it's common for kids to flip-flop through friends like they're used sandals. And it's not all necessarily bad. This is just the way it goes. Now, what happened, though, that you're not close to those same people anymore? I'll tell you what happened. Some kind of a distance happened where you did what? You quit talking to them. You quit communicating with them. You quit spending time with them. You want to be closer to God, then talk to him. Involve him in your life. Let him be a part of what's going on. Consider him as you're going through your day. Ask him for help and guidance and direction. See him as somebody who's riding shotgun with you in the car as you're driving along. Or Tom, you're out on the semi, right? You're out on the highway. Right, he's right here, right with me. You know how some kids, they get made fun of because they have imaginary friends? They have a good way of picturing somebody being with them who's not really there. This is completely different than that. This is saying you do have somebody there. You just have to see it. You just have to appropriate that by faith. Start talking to the Lord. Now, how does he talk to you? We cover this periodically. He primarily, he talks to you through his word and through the impact of people that he's working in as they speak his truth, his life, his strength, his hope. They speak it into your life as he speaks through them. So those are the two main ways that he speaks to you. So 
if you're not reading his word and letting him speak to you, and you're not spending time with the people that he speaks through, now what? Guess what? You're not going to be very close to God. All right, verse 10. I pray that I can come see you. So verse 8, I thank God for you. Verse 9, I always pray for you. Verse 10, I pray that I can come see you. He says, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And here's an example of a prayer of petition. So we had a prayer of thanksgiving. We have a prayer of intercession. It was on somebody else's behalf. Now we have a prayer of petition. It's personal to Paul. He's saying, I want to come see you. See, having expressed his gratitude to God and reminded, reminded these believers of his ongoing concern and prayer for them, Paul now tells them he has been praying that he could come see them. Now note this. Paul is uncertain about how that will even be possible. You know, faith is trusting God with the things we can't see. You see how he says that here? Making request if See the uncertainty there? By some means, meaning I have no idea how this even could happen. Now at last I may find a way, meaning I have no idea how God's going to do this, in the will of God to come to you. Very different than the way we approach things. You see, Paul sees his personal preferences as secondary to God's will. You see that? Find a way, very critical words here though, find a way in In the will of God. It's not like, find a way because at all costs, regardless of whether God's behind it or not, I'm going to make this happen in my flesh. I'm going to find a way. He's praying that I could find a way in the will of God to come and see you. You see, as a servant of God, he worked within the framework of God's will. All too often, Believers formulate their own plans and then attempt to co-opt God into them or seek his blessing after the fact. Any of you know what I'm talking about there? Who's experienced that before? The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We are so deceived at times where we take overt, self-centered, human-based, walking by means of our own intellect and walking as directed by our flesh, putting me first, and we whitewash it with spirituality. We try to sanctify it with the right words and with the right posture and make it look godly. We don't even know we're doing it. It says, who can know it? Very often we're so deceived we don't even know it, but we're trying to spiritualize our own walk in the flesh. And we, again, come and try to do the right things, say the right things, but the kernel at the core of it all is me first. God can't honor that. God can't use that. He says, I'm going to have to be the kernel at the center of this. It's going to have to be my, my will, thy will be done, is what Jesus says in the garden. Not my will, but thy will be done. And then, building off of that Christ first. I died and my life is now hidden with Christ. I'm in Christ and he's in me. 
So if it's death to self and it's life in Christ and he's going to be the center of it, then as I prayer, pray, I will be praying, not my will, but your will. Lord, I would like this. I see this as beneficial, but only if it's consistent with your plan. Only if you lead and direct in this way. Not, I've already decided that this is what I'm going to do. Now bless my plans, God. Why are so easily sucked into that? Between not giving a rip what God thinks or pretending we care what God thinks and just trying to pull him in at the, at the tail end of it, a cart before the horse scenario, we got a lot of problems. God says that's why you got to get your eyes off of yourself get your eyes back on me. That's why you can do nothing without me. That's why you have to get your gaze fixed vertically. You got to go vertical so that you can let this mind be in you. Allow my thinking to be your thinking. You can be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. In any event, we see that here with, with Paul and what a great example in his prayer. I want to come see you, but only if it's God's will. Verse 11. I want to strengthen and support you. So I thank God for you. I always pray for you. I pray that I can come see you. And I want to strengthen and support you. Verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. You see this first phrase here, I long to see you. Paul intensely desires to see these fellow believers. He doesn't even know how it's going to be possible, but he has this intense desire to see them. You see, the Spirit is manifested in the life of a believer through love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. That word, even agape love, it means to cherish or have deep affection for someone. Now, when it's applied in the context of Christ's way of using that word, then you have that attitude of selflessness and sacrifice that Christ brings to that, med- that mentality. But it starts with this deep affection and concern or to cherish your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I long to see you. See, one natural application of that love that is produced by God's Spirit in your life is a desire for personal interaction with other believers. And Paul is talking about this as he's going to have to go through a journey in order to come and see them. You think about, we can't be bothered to even start our car to come and see other believers, to be around other believers. You see, Paul's underlying focus is the spiritual well-being of others. So first he has to have a heart for people, a heart that only God can produce in him through his spirit. Then after that, after he has that heart, God's heart, God's vision for people, then he, you see that he has this desire for this, to focus on this physical, I'm sorry, the spiritual well-being of others, not the physical well-being of them. You see, in part, I, that, there's a purpose statement there, a Heine clause, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift. It means to share some spiritual blessing or benefit that Paul hopes will result from his visit perhaps as a result of his own spiritual giftedness. 
So he says, I have spiritual gifts that if I can come and see you, if I'm doing it as unto the Lord, led by his spirit, empowered by him, it's going to be of benefit to you. As God pours out into you through me, not because of me, but through me and through his strength and through his power. So that's one way of looking at it. The other is that, just taking it very simply, that I want to share some spiritual blessing with you through pointing you to Jesus Christ and even conversation and teaching that's centered in the truth of God's word and the truth about Jesus. And then Paul summarizes his purpose with, so that you may be established. Why do I want to bless you? Why do I want to be a blessing to you? However you looked at that. So that you may be established. Established means strengthened, fixed, or set firmly in place. And you see that God accomplishes his purposes through willing channels. God works through people to equip, to edify, to build up other believers. And Paul, when he sees himself as just an instrument that the Lord can use, he has this perspective here in verse 11. I want to strengthen and support you. And this should be the objective of any believer seeking to minister to another. But ultimately, it, it's an ad, it reflects an attitude of an underlying heart for others or concern for others, again, that doesn't come naturally. It's only God's Spirit that can produce that kind of a mindset in you because by nature, the person that you love is yourself. And we got our last verse, verse 12. That is... He says, additionally, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So we have, I thank God for you. I always pray for you. I pray that I can come see you. I want to strengthen and support you. And I desire the mutual encouragement that comes from being with you. You see, God's design for the body of Christ, as I mentioned at the very beginning of our message, both in its universal and local expression, involves symbiotic or mutually beneficial, beneficial interactions. The idea is that we come together not to tear each other down, not to be a negative influence on each other, but to be a mutually positive influence on each other. As God's Spirit is providing through me what you need, and He's providing through you what I need, through giftedness that He supplied, through a power source that He provides. It's an amazing picture of how God is able to work through broken things in a way that can bring himself honor and glory and make sure that he's the one that takes center stage. You know, if he, if he was working through people that were so wonderful, that so had, had such a natural desire for him, then when he did anything or accomplished anything, the natural tendency would be to take credit for it. Guess what? That's broken and dysfunctional as you are, the natural tendency is still to take credit for it. But it should be a little bit easier to remember, unless God is working through me, there's nothing I can do that can please him. When you're being honest, it should be easy to see. I'm just a crackpot. Crackpot. An earthen vessel that is not glamorous in any way, that God can work through when I can get out of his way, trust him and allow him to work in my life. Now what makes this mutual encouragement possible? It all comes down to this. Mutual faith. 
Mutual encouragement is possible because of mutual faith. It's what we have in common that makes this possible. The number one thing Christians have in common is that to be a Christian, you have to have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Which means that you have a mutual faith with me. And that's all we need to have in common. You might have different views about any number of different things. You you might have different music preferences. You might have different political views. You might have a different opinion about how the church should be run. You might have different opinions about, you know, Fords, Chevys, Dodge. I mean, I happen to have a Dodge Ram. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe that offends you. (laughs) I'll try to put some tape over the logos or whatever, you know. But what we have in common is enough. Listen to that. What we have in common is enough. The rest of it's just it's just extra. Can it be kind of important? Yes. But is it critical? Not compared to what we have in common, which is Jesus Christ. So thank God for you. Again, there's so many things you could be thankful for, but one source of thanksgiving should be your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the question is, are you thankful for your fellow believers? Do you pray for them? You should. Do you long to see them? Not while you're not making any time for them. Do you desire to be used to establish and encourage them? See, all these things will be true when your thinking is being directed by God's Spirit. I hope that reviewing this prayer of Paul can serve as a needed reminder and challenge to our thinking about these things. This morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion. Now, most of you are familiar with what it is, but let me just briefly say, there's nothing mystical about it. From the very beginning, Jesus instructed that this was supposed to be symbolic. Meaning, it was supposed to be a reminder. Something that we could do when we gathered together periodically to remind us of his great sacrifice for us. And so here at this church, we do it once a month. First Sunday of the month. We could do it every Sunday. We could do it every Wednesday. We could do it every day of the week if we wanted to. Because the Bible doesn't give specific instructions. It says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And so that's how we choose to do it. But I would say this. You could be thinking about and should be thinking about Christ's body that was broken for you and his blood that was shed for you each and every day. You could incorporate it into, you know, a general phrase for eating a meal is breaking bread. It comes from... It comes all the way back to this. So as you break bread, could it always cross your mind to remember what, how Christ's body was broken for you? How his blood was shed for you? How even though you didn't deserve it, he gave himself in your place? Now what would the benefit of remem- remembering his death, burial, and resurrection for you be? the benefit would be it would reorient your thinking. It would reprioritize 
the things that you're putting importance on in your life. We don't do this because we have to do this. We do it so it can get our eyes going vertical again. Remember who we are. Remember what our mission is. Remember that we're here by God's grace to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. To live, to lift him up. That we're here to be a reflection of his light as we keep pointing people, shining the flashlights of our lives on him. Saying, I'm nothing, but here's, here's the one who can do anything, has done everything. Here's the goodness and the grace and the, and the greatness of my God. So that's what we do. Uh, so as we pass the elements around, you have that opportunity to think about what Jesus has done for you. And so I'd ask you just to prepare your mind so you're in a place to do that. And I'd ask whoever's going to help with this to come forward.